Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features Olga Troinskaya, professor in the Department of Computer Science at Princeton and deputy director for genomics at the Flatiron Institute Center for Computational Biology in New York City. She is joined by Vijay Pandey, founding partner of A16Z Bio and Health. Olga and Vijay talked about her background and how she got involved in genomics, as well as how evolving biotechnologies have improved scientists' ability to see different views of the cell. So we want to be able to look at what's going on at RNA, proteomics, metabolomics, you know, and we need to look at this at single cell level and we want to understand the trajectories and be able to understand, you know, potentially across scales what's going on. And so the technologies are evolving. And now, of course, the, a lot of this is really about multimodal and multiomic. Uh, and we're really in the uh, heart of this, right? Really trying to build these new approaches that are able to really capture the diversity of biology. They discuss the social factors that influence health. As genomic research advances, scientists may find it easier to identify how the genome makes certain individuals more vulnerable to environmental factors. This could pave the way for better treatments. We are really hoping that in the future and pretty um, soon, we should be able to really understand genomic signals that might make uh, individuals uniquely vulnerable, for example, to kidney disease and specific environmental conditions, right? For example, and this is not an, this is an example that's very realistic. That's actually a signal we are seeing in the data, that if you live in a highly polluted environment, then you're much more likely to have adverse outcomes with homeochronic kidney disease. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. So Olga, thank you so much for being on BioEats World. Thanks so much, Vijay. It's a pleasure to be here. I think uh, people would be very curious to hear about what got you uh, to where you are now, especially the background that you have uh, blends both computer science and biology in very deep ways. And I'd love to hear sort of your take for how you've seen the arc of these two things coming together. I was just incredibly fascinated with biology and especially genetics and what now became genomics and understanding that since I was a young kid, but I always really loved doing computer science and math, if that makes any sense. It just seemed like there's got to be a way to use the you know, computer science and math to be able to look at biology. Uh, and at the time, there was really nothing that I saw, and I had to look around a number of departments to find some uh, luminaries who were already working in that field. And so I stumbled actually upon Steven Salzberg's webpage when I was a you know, sophomore in college. Sorry to set the stage, this is roughly like late 1990s. Yes, this is uh, mid to late 1990s, exactly. And Stephen was a junior faculty member at Hopkins at the time, already involved with the big sequencing efforts going on with Craig Venter's, you know, institute at the time. So I basically was literally looking through computer science department, seeing if anyone did biology. And he took a chance on me as this random kid from another university, from University of Richmond. And it was just amazing. It was so fun. Uh, and it was so clearly an essential way to really look at all these data and turn the data into actually understanding and knowledge. 
that it was clear, you know, after I worked with him for that summer, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. But at the time, you know, there was really nothing. I, when I interviewed for graduate schools, I mean, you were, I think, a young faculty member around that yeah. same time. Like, yeah. you know, there were certainly people, but they were far between. There wasn't really a clear knowledge outside of that community of what was going on. And I think now it's hard to find anyone who doesn't know about how essential <laughs> computer science and AI is to biology. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting to think that perhaps really what we just needed was data, right? I think then uh, that's what genomics really kicked that off. So you get to Stanford like around like early 2000s, right? Somewhere around there. I believe you worked with Russ Altman then. Yeah, Russ Altman and David Botstein. So I was uh, in the biomedical informatics, but you know my advisors, obviously, uh, David was in genetics. So between informatics and genetics. And so at that time, and I think um, thereafter, a lot of your work, you know, centered around computational to tools for genomics. You know, those tools have come a long way, and especially, uh, I could imagine AI is starting to play a pretty significant role. I don't know if you could walk us through a, a bit of sort of how this evolved and how, uh, you know, what's your take on machine learning through those two decades? It's been a really huge uh, evolution of what, obviously, right, we both know, but I don't know if the listeners know that AI, uh, you know, it's not new. You know, there was huge excitement about AI and biomedical informatics sort of in the 80s, well before my time, more looking in terms of uh, decision support for clinicians and things like that. And so when I uh, came to Stanford around 99, uh, the biggest success of machine learning and AI approaches was really in terms of genome assembly and really like analyzing sequences, right, of various sorts. And I actually came to Stanford precisely because while I felt like there was a huge amount of work that has been done in sequencing, I've heard about these new technologies uh, that were able to really look in a high throughput, whole genome way at functions. So really understanding what's actually, what are genes actually doing? And so the microarray technology had just been, in, uh, you know, established by David Watstein and Pat Brown, really Pat Brown and David, they were really doing these amazing experiments where they were finally able to look at RNA on a whole cell level. And they were able to look at what was going on at, you know, starting to look at, for example, patients with breast cancer and trying to understand really the molecular level, what was happening uh, with the disease. And I was really excited about trying to do that. And so I think uh, a lot of the sort of early 2000s, there was a huge explosion of these approaches that were trying to uh, and really succeeding and were really essential uh, in analysis of these sort of data sets, right? Like really starting to look at types of technologies that are trying to look deeply, you know, at uh, either at the RNA level, at proteomics level, various different types of functional approaches, while also there's been a lot more on the genomic side, looking at the genomes in a deeper level, right? Like really understanding the structure of the genomes and contacting that, not just with evolution, but also with function and what it meant and connecting this across organisms, uh, both for really fun understanding fundamental biology, but actually for also understanding what it can tell us about the possibilities for drug development, about using model systems for understanding diseases. And then I think more recently, you know, this, of course, all evolves with biotechnologies, right? As these biotechnologies were exploding and we were really starting to really think, well, we don't want to just look at within one biomolecule, within one view of the cell. We really want to start making a three-dimensional picture, so to speak. So we want to be able to look at what's going on at RNA, proteomics, metabolomics, you know, and we need to look at this at single cell level and we want to understand the trajectories and be able to understand, you know, potentially across scales what's going on. And so the technologies are evolving 
And now, of course, the, a lot of this is really about multimodal and multi-omic, uh, and we're really in the uh, heart of this, right? Really trying to build these new approaches that are able to really capture the diversity of biology for separation of mechanistic models, how biophysicists think about the world, and the machine learning sort of models, how computer scientists uh, think about the world. We're going to finally, we're starting to see these models coming together and being able to yeah. build on the strengths of both. And I think that's so, essential to really be able to do precision medicine. There is so much excitement about precision medicine with genomics, right? I think uh, the idea that, okay, we could sequence a patient, maybe sequence a tumor, and that from that, we'd be able to do so much. We'd be able to figure out which cancer drug to give or which drug in general to give. And that hasn't quite come to fruition yet, it feels like. Or maybe it has and it's happened so gradually that we lost track. What's your take on precision medicine? To what extent was it successful? What's left to be done? And what do you think will be done you know, in, in the next few years? Well, I think, um, I think we have seen a lot of successes. We're just sort of so used to them, right? Like, I mean, they're smaller. I think a lot of it was a hype. We did not quite, none of us, I think, quite appreciated quite how complex it is, right? We sort of thought we'll find these few genes. They're the drivers. We'll develop targeted therapies. We're done. And it turns out we have found some really huge, you know, mm -hmm. huge big hits, right? Like breast cancer is totally different. That diagnosis is totally different than it was before, right? Like there's certain subtypes of lung cancer where there's really incredible, right? We all know these cases. And of course, these are true revolutionary successes of precision medicine. What I think we underestimated is that it's not enough to actually just know the genome, that it's not, you know, it's not just a few causal genes. And honestly, one uh, point that I'm really kind of, well, I'll just say obsessed about mm -hmm. is the fact that like, you know, 98% of our genome is not genes. And it's not just me, of course, that has this revelation, right? And so that means 98% of 3 billion letters. And you know, it's a search space that we can't do by traditional population genetics approaches, right? We're not, they're not just common variants. There's rare variants. And so we're never going to have a well-powered enough study, even if we sequenced every person on earth. So oh, wait, we, wait, wait, let's, can we back up on that? Because that's actually a pretty strong statement. Like we would yep. never have a sufficiently powered study if we sequence everybody. That's because these variants are very rare. And you want to know their impact in specific contexts, right? So you would need, okay, maybe never is too strong, but it's not realistic, right? You would need yeah. to know how this variant acts in a specific background, at the specific developmental stage, in a specific environment. Maybe this is actually deleterious only when the mother has an infection early in pregnancy and then this variant all of a sudden predisposes the child to, let's say, autism. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, in any other context, we wouldn't see it. So I think we need AI approaches. Well, we know that we need AI approaches to really sort of serve the as an interpreter, right? Much like we do for language models. Well, I think your, your point is a really interesting point, which is that I think what genomics taught us is, you know, as you said, things are very complicated, but also it, for me, it feels like it's shifted from talking about cancer in terms of organs towards uh, pathways and genes and so on, which I think is a huge foundational shift in how we think about things. But the vision that you're painting is actually, I think, pretty intriguing because you're talking about more data. I'm just curious, how much data do we need? Because you can imagine you put together genomics, maybe let's throw in uh, proteomics when that's really rolling, and all of EHR. Is that enough for AI to combine that to be able to answer to for that to be better than the current state uh, standard of care? I would throw in metabolomics at least for sure, right? Like uh, because I think we're seeing more and more how critical metabolites are in these questions. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's as complex as we need for every disease. We need every organ and every cell type 
assayed by every single method, right? You know, we're sort of wandering on this giant map and we don't even need know in which direction to look for oil, right? But once we sort of say, oh, there's signs that oil is here, right? Like we can say, well, what we really need is to look at this cell type very deeply. Or we can say, well, in this particular disease, maybe metabolites are not so important. But in this other aspect, you know, we're really, or, you know, inflammation is really critical here. We really need to look very deeply at immune cell types, whereas in this other context, maybe it's not as essential. We need uh, data sets that are generated very thoughtfully ahead of time with thinking about how we're going to use AI approaches later to analyze these data. It's starting to happen, right? Like I'm part of this big uh, consortium looking at this, that NIH-funded consortium looking at this and kidney disease. Mm. Other institutes are thinking about this as well, right? Like really starting to do multiple different modalities and trying to understand what is necessary. Once you sort of know a little bit, then you can start generating a lot more targeted data and you can start de developing models to again, identify what is missing as well as to be able to make predictions that lead to better treatment guidance, better therapies and new drug development. You're heavily involved in the Princeton Precision Health Initiative. I'm curious to understand more what, what you're doing and especially how you're bridging this gap between AI and data set science and omics and so on to be able to have an impact clinically. Yeah. Uh, what we've realized with this initiative, what we're trying to address is really this huge gap, not just between the data and the outcomes and precision outcomes, but also the fact that the data is very fragmented, right? Like there's really exciting development sort of in the omics stage and molecular area. There is separate information that's coming in a, uh, with people who are thinking at an epidemiological level, mm. right? There's completely separate health economics modeling. Never mind the environmental impacts are not even captured. That's another, I think, big area where we really, environmental and social determinants of health is another huge factor that's not captured right now in precision health questions, right? Could oh, we sorry. take those one by one? Because I think those are really interesting. How about let's talk about environmental. How does environmental connect to all this? So, for example, you might be a patient with uh, chronic kidney disease and or, you know, for example, you might have a mutation in APOL1, one of the genes that really, you know, if you have a serious mutation and very much in the U.S., and this is uh, largely confined to the African-American population, which is one of the causes why African-American population is so uh, disproportionately affected by uh, serious coronary kidney disease. In Africa, the same mutation doesn't seem to have the same symptoms. Mm. Like these individuals have those mutations. They're in similar genetic ancestry, right? And then they don't have the symptoms. So, you know, we don't have a proof in this particular question, but this is a really extreme case of this where it's very likely the environment. You can think of this over and over, right? Like there could be a variant that is only going to predispose you to adverse outcomes if you're living in high polluted environment, right? Like, so then you're... Wow. Immune system is already primed, and that's going to cause higher levels of base inflammation. That's what's going to make take you from having a mutation that's effectively benign to having a mutation that has clinical effects. And then social determinants, I think, is vastly underestimated. I think I've read uh, one area that claimed that it, it actually has a greater impact on your health than all of healthcare itself. Because you talk about that, and especially like what are social, what are these social determinants, and so on. And, and, and how, why are they so important? I completely agree with you. Social determinants of health are not really, they're clearly studied. People realize they're important, but they're kind of studied separately. It's sort of just the separate area. And we've, uh, me included, I think, uh, have underestimated just how critical they are to everything we do when we're, it comes to precision health. So by social determinants of health, we mean everything sort of social that can affect your health. So anything from your income 
to how close you live to a supermarket, right? Which, of mm. course, affects your diet, uh, to your ability to get to a hospital, right? To your, you know, background potential uh, effects of discrimination in healthcare, right? So all of those, right? So anything from your race, your ancestry, to your social class, to your educational level, right? Because that's going to affect which doctor you might go to uh, and might even be separate from income. You know, usually the things people look at is really going to be driven by what's easiest to look at, right? So it's going to be income, it's going to be race or ancestry, uh, and it's going to be basically your where you live. So that's going to determine a lot of those aspects. And of course, that's critical, right? Once we think about it, even intuitively, and now we know the data absolutely clearly shows it, that that has a huge effect. What's the reason why it wasn't integrated before? I mean, naively, it feels like that's outside of biology into like the social science world, right? It's uh, not in the departments we play with. Is that really the reason that, or is there something deeper than that? I'm, of course, not a scholar of science, but that's my sense. I have to say, yeah. like, since we've, you know, Princeton Precision Health just started a year ago, and we, you know, Princeton, uh, you know this, uh, but I think a lot of people don't realize we don't have a medical school, we don't have a hospital. We sort of thought we would have to defend to everyone why we're doing Princeton Precision Health, this data-driven health initiative, integrative health initiative in Princeton, and it turned out that our uh, medical school colleagues, hospital colleagues are thrilled because we can bring in not just the AI experts, which they're excited about, but actually they're way more excited about the sociologists, the behavioral psychologists, the ethicists that we bring in, who really want to think about these hard questions. Now, we spoke about uh, you doing genomics in the 2000s, and now 20 years later, how does that fit in with all the other things we've talked about, the environment, the social determinants, and so on? Yeah, so the, we're really hoping that in the future, and then pretty um, soon, we should be able to really understand genomic signals that might make uh, individuals uniquely vulnerable, for example, to kidney disease and specific environmental conditions, right? For example, and this is not an, this is an example that's very realistic, that's actually a signal we are seeing in the data, that if you live in a highly polluted environment, then you're much more likely to have adverse outcomes with, from your chronic kidney disease. And then we might be able to actually identify treatments that are targeting specifically your genetic background and the variants that are, and the pathways that are activated based on that environmental impact and the genomic vulnerability that you have, right? So that's really going to be uh, a big player in this. And we can actually develop treatments in a totally different way, right? Like we should be able to have uh, treatments like metabol metabolites that might actually have very little side effects and would be targeted to the specific again, pathways for individuals, mm. let's say with ADHD or other neuropsychiatric disorders, where we're really able to do a lot more with a lot less in terms of like much smaller hits, but so precisely targeted that the outcome would be way more than we've ever been able to do with our currently pretty blunt instruments. Yeah, what's fun is that it goes back to what you said you know earlier, which is that we got into genomics because it finally we had data, but now you've got so much more and and so much more in, in such orthogonal axes that it's natural to think that now is when it really comes together. Exactly. The game, the name of the game now is really integrating all the way from molecular, genomic, molecular, clinical, socioeconomic, across all the different, uh, you know, omics modalities and across scales, right? Being able to understand what does changes in these small cells, like the protocytes of your kidney that filter. What does that mean to the whole organ? What does that mean to the whole system, right? What does that mean in the context of different environmental 
uh, stressors. And of course, we need the advanced AI models and we need all of these different data types to come together to be able to do that. And we're finally at the, on the brink of being able to put that together. It's one thing to be, do this in academia or especially in like the most sort of storied departments and so on. But, you know, how do you get this to distribute more broadly? You know, how do you democratize these tools such that um, other people can use them too? What does that look like? And I guess there's democratizing for other researchers. There's actually getting it into clinicians' hands. And that's actually a big deal. And, and I think easier said than done. How are you thinking about that part? I've, I think that's critical, right? Because otherwise... You know, what I'm doing fundamentally and what we're all doing at Princeton Precision Health is an applied science, right? Like, I mean, the whole point of it is to make an impact in the world. So uh, through all of the different avenues. So number one, we're working very closely with clinicians throughout this development. We have actually a clinician on staff who has joined Princeton Precision Health. Uh, and then we have actually visiting uh, appointments for people to come visit, uh, for example, during their uh, fellowship training to really understand what's going on and then also bring the tools and bring the questions to us. Uh, so that's one. The second is, of course, uh, you know, both in terms of researchers and clinicians, you have to build tools that people can use, right? If I'm going to share, and we do, we share our open source libraries, for example, for our deep learning models, and that's great. Uh, and that gets them to researchers who are just like me, but it's not going to get them into the hands of a biomedical scientist who is running a huge, you know, clinical trial or, and, you know, is really just wants to analyze their genomes for impacts of variants. So we also have uh, tools where they can really upload just basically pieces of data and get the predictions. They're very user-friendly and we spend a huge amount of time. Uh, and that's actually with the help of Simons Foundation, uh, the Flatiron Institute, uh, my sort of other appointment, where we have a whole group that's just working on this, like really industry quality software uh, that's aimed at biomedical scientists. So this is more researchers. We don't really expect clinicians. I mean, perhaps some people who are looking at rare diseases where they really want, but you know, it's really research software. Then uh, in terms of really getting it in the clinic, uh, we actually work also with behavioral psychologists and clinicians in collaboration to understand how our predictions would actually impact behavior, no right? Problem. Like so not just giving them the tool, but actually making sure that what we make a prediction of even, you know, in the extreme excited, uh, happy example, what if we have a perfect classifier? It, it works perfectly. This doesn't exist, but, you know, it would. It could. Yeah. But what if the reaction of the clinician is actually not what we would expect? And it changes their behavior in a way that actually decreases the quality of hair. That's right. Like, so that we actually have to study. So we're getting them tools that in a way that they can use, but also in a way where we understand the impact of those tools. And we do actually closely collaborate also with the target populations, right? So we are starting for some of our, you know, through uh, some of the consortia, for example, that kidney consortia, the patients are actually, participants are involved in the process. And uh, that's actually something that we're very committed to at Princeton Precision Health as well. So really like making tools available, making tools accessible, and making sure that they're accurate and the impact is what we think. Well, Olga, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Thank you so much, Vijay. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. 
Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. 